This is The Guardian. Today, why some museums in the UK are returning their looted Benin bronzes, and why the British Museum isn't. The attack was in the night, and people were decimated. About 125 years ago, in the Kingdom of Benin, which is different from the country of Benin and actually part of modern-day Nigeria, British forces committed one of the most notorious massacres of the colonial era. Villages were burnt down, palace was ransacked completely, and all the sacred places, places of worship, interiors, women and children, of the king were all ransacked and the chiefs were rounded up. They started burning down houses. In response to the killing of a party of British officials, London ordered a so-called punitive expedition, the wiping out not just of the king, known as the Oba, but his entire kingdom. Most of the houses were made from dry touch, so it was easy to set them on fire while people were running away and I don't think they allowed children and older women to leave the houses before they set them on fire. The British forces killed and destroyed, but they also looted on a massive scale. Before they started yanking things off, removing the artifacts, removing the bronze works, removing the woodworks, removing the, the ivory tusks that were neatly carved and were part of the altar in some of the inner sacred places of the king. These objects, ripped from the palace, became souvenirs and were shipped all over the world. Those works that were stolen on that period of attack and expedition, as they call it, are what you would find in some of the museums around the world today. If you're in London, you can go and see these priceless treasures of the Benin Kingdom right now, the famous Benin Bronzes. When we say the Benin Bronzes, that is a term that also includes not only the iconic figurative sculptures made of bronze, but also a host of other objects made out of carved ivory, coral work, wood. Today, these stolen artefacts are still easier to see in the UK than in Benin City, the place where they were created. That's one of the ways that researchers say the violence that happened there still echoes more than a hundred years later. It was about an attempt to lay claim to sovereignty. It was about an attempt to try to remove or destroy traditional religion. And maybe most violently, it was to try to undertake an ongoing cultural dispossession. The victors pose for their photographs in the palace courtyards. Stacked behind them, objects from the palace shrines that they were to bring back to Britain. As museums in Germany and the US have started returning their collections of the Benin bronzes over the past few years, those in the UK have held off. In August, that finally started to change, with Oxford and Cambridge announcing they planned to give their bronzes back followed by a major British museum announcing it was also returning its collection. This week, the Horniman Museum in South London announced some of that plunder, 72 pieces they kept for 120 years, are set to return home. 
Now, the pressure's on for the institution with the largest collection of Benin bronzes in the world, the British Museum, to do the same. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, a victory in a hundred-year campaign to return the Benin bronzes, and the museum still standing in its way. Dan Hicks, you're a professor of contemporary archaeology at Oxford University, and you've written a book about the Benin bronzes and the urgent need to return them. Just to start with, when we talk about the Benin bronzes, we're not talking here about a handful of objects, are we? But actually thousands of them that have ended up in museums in the UK and around the world. Yes, more than 10,000 objects in total were taken. So much of this is about what's in the storerooms. This isn't about what's on display in museums. We're talking about objects hidden away in the storerooms, some of which have not actually seen the light of day for more than 100 years. I mean, that's really extraordinary to me, that these things weren't even really treated as treasured objects, but rather scattered around like like holiday trinkets. Like, we aren't even sure where many of these bronzes have ended up. Exactly. So I used to believe what I'd been told about the sale of the Benin bronzes, that this was some organised naval operation through which the Admiralty, having, you know, undertaken this attack upon the city and uh, removed and exiled the Oba, they kind of saved these artworks and they carefully uh, brought them back by ship to London and they officially auctioned them off, you know, one by one, supposedly to defray the costs of the expedition. In reality, the looting was a chaotic free-for-all where perhaps 200 soldiers and sailors and administrators, you know, journalists who were on the spot as well, they just took what they could. All right, so they very quickly end up being sold to museums or in the art market to private collections. But tell me about the restitution movement, this effort to have them returned. When do Nigerians start to make that demand? So the first uh, demands reach back to the 1930s. They were met, in some cases, most obviously with the return of the royal uh, regalia to the Oba in 1938. Really, the restitution movement uh, picks up its pace in the context of independence. She was about to hand over Nigeria's constitution. And presently, quoting the Queen's own words, she was to wish Nigeria a great and noble future. This was the moment for which the country's leaders, in partnership with British authority, had patiently worked. So after the Year of Africa in 1960, this uh, seminal moment for independence across the continent of Africa, of course, in many, many different nation states, there was a great awareness that the return of stolen, iconic, sovereign cultural objects would be a part of what happens next in the decolonial process. And it's at that point that I think really two things start happening in London, but also in Berlin and uh, Paris. Out of conversations between uh, civil servants and those who work in museums, to create a series of legal things that can hold back restitution, legal frameworks like the National Heritage Act here in the UK, but also a series of myths start to emerge as well. Right, so they pass these acts like the National Heritage Act that says basically museums can't give these things back, but 
Tell me about the myths they created. What kinds of stories were spread around about what would happen if these bronzes were returned to Nigeria? Stories about, well, if you give something back, it won't be looked after, it won't be on display in a museum, it'll be sold off, there'll be a war and it will be destroyed. And of course, the great irony is that all those things that the administrators thought up as myths are things that actually happened to the Benin bronzes in the museums here in the UK. Very significant collections made in the early 20th century were sold off onto the open market in the later 20th century. There were instances of objects not being looked after. We still don't even know how many objects are in the British Museum from 1897, never mind other museums, the 40 or so across the UK and the the many, many around the world. Even to the extent, though, of war and the risk of returning and things being destroyed with war, there are examples with the bombing of Hull Museum and the bombing of uh, Liverpool Museum in the 40s that there are there actually damaged uh, Benin items from the bombs that fell onto those uh, cities in the Blitz. So all of the myths that were created about, well, what might happen if things were returned, actually in between you know, the 1940s and 1970s really were happening here in the UK. Dan, over the years, when it comes to these bronzes and other African artefacts, we've seen other European countries embrace the restitution movement much more enthusiastically than the UK. Why do you think the UK lags so far behind when it comes to this issue? So it's incredible how isolated, not only, I wouldn't really say even the UK, how isolated Westminster, England is in the wider European and indeed the transatlantic sort of context. So the conversations about the enduring nature of empire are happening in very different ways in Wales, in Edinburgh, and of course, in the very distinctive uh, context of uh, Northern Ireland. So it's very, very strange that we continue to have uh, silence from our national museums and from national government. Meanwhile, of course, I mean, the good news is that the non-national museums that actually hold the majority of African looted art here in the UK, are not subject to the legal provisions of the National Heritage Act, etc. So the returns that have been announced from the University of Oxford and, and, and also Cambridge, and now from the Horniman in London as well, they are announcements that actually remind us that the story here in the UK is not only about the British Museum, it's about the city museums, it's about the university museums, it, yeah, it's about the museum trusts. How near are you right this moment from a looted Benin bronze? Because it's often nearer than you think. Victor Hikamanor, you're a Nigerian contemporary artist who grew up in Edo State, the modern-day area that was once called the Benin Kingdom. For those of us who haven't seen the Benin bronzes, what are we talking about when we talk about the artefacts? Can you describe them for me? I mean, it's a bit difficult to describe an entire people's culture that are created through the arts, you know. So where do we start from the bronze heads or from the bracelets or from the utensils, you know, everything was done in bronze, or even the plaques. You know, this, these are ways of recording history. These were ways that visitors to the palace were recorded, events were recorded, 
the bronze to them was like a court artist sketching whatever is happening in the modern day courts today. Whatever was significant, the Oba would tell the guild of bronze casters to cast it in bronze, to keep a record. So taking them away was like yanking off pages of our history. So the finest were collected by the king, you know, so which means the very ones that were stolen are some of the very finest pieces of artwork that ever came out from Benin Kingdom because they were the ones that were in the Oba's collection, in the king's collection, before the British came and totally looted everything. So it sounds like these bronzes spanned, you know, history, memory, art, that they were absolutely central to, to this civilization that took so much care to create them and, and gather them in, in the royal palace. Oh, you can say that again, because definitely arts and culture is what made the central part of the kingdom, you know. <laughs> I mean, every household we have uh, a form of artist or the other. So art making was very central to the kingdom. It's a series of histories, a series of, like, say, portraitures. You can, you can go as far as calling it the British mm. Library, you understand what I'm saying? Because, I mean, the aesthetics part of it is what we are talking about. But we are, how do we even begin to quantify the spiritual aspect and the spiritual importance of these works that we are taking out from the kingdom. There is a lot of spirituality that surrounds it. We have to realize that we had our own ways of communicating with the spirit world, with communicating with gods and all of that, and those things revolve around art. It's like the Raphaelites, it's like going to the Sistine Chapel, it's like, you name it, name any other religious art that you can see in the world today, you can then begin to understand what these works mean to the kingdom as at the time, and even till now. And Victor, for you, growing up as a boy in Edo State, what did you hear about those bronzes? How were they talked about? Bronze for us is everyday life. I mean, you go to your uncle's houses, you go to your auntie's houses, you go to different places, you meet bronze works, you know. So, but talking about that particular looting of them began to dawn on me as I, as I, as I started growing up and engaging with art history and the art from my place, you know. So... I even have to travel outside Nigeria to be able to like see them and understand that this actually came from my place. Do you remember the first time you got to see one of these stolen bronzes? About 97 at the Smithsonian, Washington DC. But then fast forward 20 years later, when I was preparing for my exhibition in London and I needed to revisit the, the history, that was the first time I went to the British Museum to actually engage with these works. And it was kind of heart-wrenching because of the uh, of what I saw there and what I met there and actually confronting what I've read in, in history books and, and art books to actually come face-to-face -face with them. Yeah, what was that like to go to the British Museum and, and actually see them there? How, how did you feel doing that? I mean, I went into that place with mixed feelings, knowing that my ancestors did this work and put in the very best. But now when I want to reference them, I have to come and see them in, a, in, a, in that kind of situation. You know? So when you look at it from that perspective, it was heavy. But I wasn't going to carry the burden of the looters on my own head. You understand what I'm saying? You know? So I engaged with them and I left them as they are. 
And at the moment, Victor, there are plans underway in Edo State to build a new museum devoted to the history and art of the Benin Kingdom, as well as contemporary West African art. The museum is intended to be home to the most comprehensive display in the world of these Benin bronzes. And that's raised hopes that one day soon, the British Museum's collection could be returned and put on display there. What does it mean to the people of Nigeria to see more and more of these bronzes starting to be returned? I mean, like, this is part of our culture, this is part of our learning, this is part of a future generation. We have to also figure out how do we even welcome them back to our community, you know, because they were not art for art's sake. Some of these objects were quite sacred. They were removed from the very innermost sacred place of our, of our cultural existence, of our cosmology. They belong to a certain cadre of our cultural heritage that cannot even be spoken about in a podcast. How would you like them to be welcomed back? I think when that time comes, we will we, we figure it out, you understand? Because uh, to be totally honest with you, the works will also decide how they want to be welcomed back. When you say the works will decide how they'll be welcomed back, what do you mean? You think you have control over them. I don't think we do, actually, because they have their own, for lack of a better word, have their own spiritual journey that they need to travel. The ones that will go to the Obas Palace, we go to the Obas Palace. The other ones that want to, like, go to part of the community and teach the descendants of those that created the work, we come out and be, and be looked at. Look at the ones that have been returned already, you know. So I think each body of work, we, again, decide where they are going to go. But we humans think that we have control over that. Well, good luck to us, you know. Coming up, for decades, the British government has stood in the way of restitution. Has anything changed today? Dan Hicks, can you tell us about what the Horniman Museum announced in August about these bronzes, this momentous decision to return them? This is about agency, and importantly, it's about consent. This is about who decides where an object is, who's in charge, what sort of, of equitable partnerships can be built, but they have to start the necessary but insufficient work of starting to make our world culture museums fit for our times is to hand over ownership to the rightful owners. And that's, that's what's exciting about the Horniman, I think. This is led, really, from a sea change that we're seeing, not only in the position of the curators, in terms of these long-standing Nigerian-led uh, demands over almost a century, but also in the wider public as well. Well, what has been happening in the wider public that you think has set the scene for these decisions, that's made it so clear to these institutions that they have to give these bronzes back? I think the evolution of how public opinion has shifted is in some ways really like what's happened in the fashion industry. So think about ethical consumption. Think about actually when people go in to buy a pair of trainers or a T-shirt. These days, they're not just looking at what they think about, does it look nice? They're asking, well, actually, how did it get here? We're seeing something very similar in the ethical consumption of culture. So when people visit a museum now, they don't just want to say, oh, oh, wow, that's a really amazing object. They want to know what it means. They want to know where it came from, how it got here. And actually, is there someone somewhere who's asking for it back? And what about the role of the government in this sort of awakening that we're seeing? Like, 
you've told me that in the recent past, civil servants actually conspired to make it harder, I mean, to make it illegal for these museums to give these objects back. Are we seeing the government today try to facilitate the return of the British Museum's collection of the bronzes, the biggest in the world, or is it continuing to put hurdles in the way? Well, we're seeing a silly game of uh, ping pong in between the British Museum and uh, government in the government will say when the question over returns comes up that this is a matter for the trustees of of the British Museum and then the trustees of the British Museum, chaired of course now by uh, George Osborne, will say oh no, this is a matter for the government to change the law. That farcical ping-pong game is not sustainable anymore. And every day we see silence and inaction, not only sadly from government, but also from our national museums. They simply make themselves more irrelevant. They're being left behind by the rest of the world. Well, earlier I spoke to the Culture Secretary, Oliver Dowden, and I began by asking him whether he thought the stolen Benin bronzes should be owned by Nigeria. Well, I think that they properly reside in the British Museum. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't work uh, with the the government in Nigeria uh, to see how we can... When you're seeing the federal government of Germany, the key museums in North America now Oxford and Cambridge and the Horneman here in the UK, when you see this as a normal part of what arts and culture is in the 2020s, the silence and the inaction, the idea that you can just hide these things away in the storeroom and keep your head in the sand, that is unsustainable. So it's fascinating. Those positions are just not tenable anymore. And it's amazing to be working in, in, in I think, any sector where what can and can't be said has changed so quickly. You know, there was a point where you weren't able to make these arguments and suddenly we can. And the pushback used to have some coherence. And now if you start saying, oh, but where will it end? We're going to empty out the British Museum and shut it down. My concern about this is where do you actually draw the the, the line with this? The collections of our great national institutions have been developed over many, many centuries. I mean, nobody sensible is saying that in these uh, debates now. And it's incredible to think that only two years ago, some were continuing to repeat those old 1960s myths. But I have to say, I've never felt more optimistic about my sector at any point in the time I've worked in museums for the past 30 years. It can't just be about returning the Benin bronzes, but that is the necessary first step to making our museums fit for our times. We are beginning to see the result of some countries finally listening to what has been talking about in regards to these works that needed to be returned. So the conversation is ongoing. We are not out of the woodworks yet. A lot needs to be done because after the physical objects are returned, then we have other conversations that needs to be had because we can't just brush over those conversations that have not uh, been tabled yet because there is more to be tabled, you know. That was Victor Ehikamano, a contemporary artist from Nigeria. Thank you so much to him. And also to Professor Dan Hicks from Oxford University. You can check out his book called The Brutish Museums, The Benin Bronzes, Colonial Violence and Cultural Restitution. We reached out to the British Museum and a spokesperson told us, The British Museum understands and recognises the significance of the issues surrounding the return of objects. And we work with communities, colleagues and museums across the globe to share the collection as widely as possible. 
deepening public access and understanding, creating new ways and opportunities for collections to be shared and understood right across the world, and forging connections between the present and the past remain at the core of what the British Museum seeks to achieve. A DCMS spokesperson said, museums and galleries in the UK operate independently of the government. Decisions relating to the care and management of their collections are a matter for the trustees of each museum. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Ruth Abrahams. It was exec by Nicole Jackson. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Elizabeth Casson and Phil Maynard. We're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.